Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today our senior pastor Perry Duggar will lead us into a new series on the biblical concept of marriage. You can find our weekly message outline and many other of our resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood app. Today we begin a new series, and today's message, as part of that series, the series is called Marriage Made in Heaven, but Lived on Earth. If it's made in heaven, it ought to be perfect and easy, shouldn't it? We think, and yet we haven't found it so. Take out your outline. Today's message is God's Pattern for Marriage. I'm just going to look at some of the essential scriptures that teach us the, the foundation for marriage. The theme verse is, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. You say, well, that, that sounds like everything should work perfectly, but mine doesn't. And how did an institution created by God end up being so difficult and fail so often? How many of you heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the world? How many of you heard that? If true, that's terribly disappointing, isn't it? Y'all wake up. Y'all are inside, it's dry. That's terribly disappointing. It's even distressing. And it seems to assert that faith makes no difference where marriage is concerned, doesn't it? But that isn't true. An article from 2012, based on findings of several research projects by mainstream sociologists. This is not focused on the family or any Christian organization. But the conclusion was that people who take their faith seriously, who attend church nearly every week, who read their Bibles and other spiritual materials, who pray privately and with others, have a significantly lower divorce rate than nominal church members than the general public and then unbelievers. In another study, Bradford Wilcox, a sociologist at the University of Virginia, again, not a Christian uh, university, but director of the National Marriage Project, his finding words, and I quote, active conservative Protestants who regularly attend church are 35% less likely to divorce compared to people with no religious affiliation. So there's numerous studies, there's others I won't won't bore you with, but these studies show that people who actively pursue the Christian faith, who, who actively attempt to build a biblical marriage, experienced significantly better more satisfying and lasting marriages. So I urge you 
to pay attention and show up and be involved in this really pretty short series. Only lasts two months, six messages, and then we break one week for a 25th anniversary that's upcoming. This isn't a series for bad marriages. It's a series for better marriages. Now, let me say something that may be causing anxiety in this room. I want a commitment from everybody here that they're going to put forth some effort to improve their marriages. I want a commitment. I want to see some hands. And I want this commitment that the travel home isn't going to be filled with accusation and acrimony. I think that's nervous laughter. You see what I'm saying? Because when we know it's not where it ought to be and where we want to be, some of us are, are nervous about hearing what it can be because we fear reprisals. So I'm asking you to exert grace toward your spouse throughout this series, really beyond, but will you do that? Will we hold our tongues with the accusation? Come on, I got to see them now. I'm going to preach all day. So you've got to let it go, okay? Because I can promise you this. How much has your spouse improved through accusation and through aggressive behavior? Have they? Okay, so let's let it drop and let's pray Let's do less arguing and more praying that God works inside me and God works inside my spouse, okay? Is that fair? I want some enthusiasm. Is that fair? Yes, yes please. Why should unmarried people even attend this series? Well, you might get married in the future. And you certainly know people who could benefit from biblical wisdom that you absorb. Now, I'm assuming something big. I'm assuming we understand that all of us are acting as a faith community. And we are responsible for each other's lives as well as our own. Do you know that? If your marriage works and nobody in your sphere of influence's marriage works, that says something about you. You see my point? We have the responsibility to engage in each other's lives. And boy, you know, is it, 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 it's, it's distressing to me that people would think uh, Christianity has no effect on divorce. It's absolutely not true. It's absolutely untrue regarding a certain type of Christianity, but it's not a nominal sort of brain-dead Christianity going through the motions. It's a deliberate pursuit of Jesus Christ by faith. Does that make sense? Are you ready to do that? Some of us need to wake up spiritually a little bit. And in any event, much of this series is, is just about biblical relationships generally. So it applies to all kinds of relationships. So are you willing? Are you willing to attempt 
My grandson left me a gift last weekend. He, well, he left a lot of gifts, but um, are, are you willing to try to build your marriage according to God's biblical pattern? If you are, I want you to stand. If you are willing to attempt to build your marriage according to God's biblical pattern. And if you're, not, if you're single you, and you're willing to help somebody build theirs, you stand too. Because I want to affirm that presence. Okay. Now I want to... Come on, get it up. Because here's the point. You won't improve your marriage half-hearted and lazy. You hear what I'm saying? Some of us have marriages that are dying a slow death. That's got to be over. That's got to be over. All right, y'all sit down. God's pattern for marriage includes deliberate differences. Genesis 1.27. And I know you guests are with you. Well, I didn't know we were going to get a pep rally. Well, see, you got to bring the energy. Then I won't have to try to move you a little bit. Verse 127. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, what that says is that men and women share equally in the image of God. Well, what is the image of God? Well, I give you several things that it includes. Abilities... There goes my contact. Abilities that, are, that set humans apart from animals and that reflect the nature of God, including reason, morality, self-awareness, reflection, language, personality, an eternal nature, a capacity to enter and to maintain and to improve relationships, as well as creativity through artistic expression. Animals don't ask themselves about the meaning of life. Foxes don't stretch out on stone and say, I wonder if I should have eaten that rabbit. Humans do. Humans reflect. They can change. Again, men and women share the image of God equally, but not identically. Because we display God's image differently according to our sex. See, men and women were created to be distinct, to be different from each other. And these differences are evident even in an infant. I raised two girls. I now sit with a boy, and he's completely different, and he's not yet two years old. Do I have to convince anybody of this? The sexes differ physically, mentally, and emotionally. And now all of these are generalizations, so anything I say you can take some exception to, okay? So these are generalizations, they're stereotypical, of course, but that doesn't mean they're inaccurate. Physically, men are taller. They're larger. They're broader with greater muscle mass. 
They have denser, stronger bones and tendons and ligaments. They have more hair, although a tendency to lose it sooner. They have a larger brain mass and volume, but that's related more to the size of men than it is the IQ. There's not a distinguishable difference between men and women in IQ in intelligence. Women are more sensitive to, to sound and smell. They have a lower blood pressure. They have a faster heartbeat. And women have more pain receptors so they feel more frequent and more severe pain. In the same measure of blood, men have more red blood cells, women have more white blood cells. That's why women are less prone to infection and recover more rapidly. Mentally, men tend to be better at visual, spatial, logical, perceptual, and analytical skills. That's why typically a man can parallel park easier than a woman. I mean, isn't that the truth? My wife doesn't like to park if there's not a two-space gap somewhere, you know? She likes a little, a little barrier, a little boundary. And that includes proficiency at math, problem solving, building, even puzzles, working puzzles. Women are more intuitive. They're, they're more holistic. They think with, with both hemispheres of their brain. Women operate from both hemispheres. Men are typically more um, left dominant. Women tend to be more creative, more integrative. They're more proficient earlier at talking, at vocabulary, at pronunciation, at reading, and they have a better memory. Is that true? A woman can remember what she wore at a significant event seven years ago. Did we go to this wedding? Well, yes, don't you remember I wore this? This pink chiffon? I know I had on underwear. <laughs> but only because I usually wear it. A man has to look on the floor to remember what he wore yesterday. Emotionally, women are in touch with a much wider range and a greater intensity of feelings than men. And that's why women do tend to find greater fulfillment through relationships, through offering support and comfort and nurture. Ephesians 5.33. And you see it there. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. The point I'm making there is why does it say different things for the two? You know, Aretha Franklin just passed and didn't she sing... R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That song was written by Wilson Pickett. It wasn't written by a woman to be sung by a woman, even though she made it famous. A woman's self-esteem is more closely related to the quality of her relationships. A man's self-esteem is related to what? More closely. Come on, what do you think? Occupation career achievements, career accomplishments. It doesn't mean the husband doesn't care about his children or his wife. The husband notices there's some short people in the house. 
but we're oriented differently. You see what I'm saying? And yet this is sometimes where we grow frustrated and express anger, isn't it? Because we have failed to understand the difference in the way God crafted us. So do you think men and women are alike? Do y'all? No, we're created differently. Even as children, girls are more interested in toys with faces like dolls and stuffed animals. Boys are drawn to toys they can manipulate and throw and, you know, like blocks and balls and trucks. You know, I got an 18-month-old kid sitting in the high chair and he's wanting to fling stuff. My children didn't fling stuff when they were that young. But isn't gender fluid? No, it's not fluid. Gender is consistent with our physiology. However, it is developing up, you know, through puberty in those years. And children can experience wounds from parents, from others, from other kids that cause them to believe lies about their identities, about their personhood, that can cause gender confusion. I didn't say that gender confusion didn't exist. I said gender fluidity doesn't exist. It's not just, you don't form your, your, your gender just because of the way your mother dressed you or what toys they bought you. In fact, Brown University, in a study of just here in, in August, revealed some things they actually were embarrassed about because it found that social media and friends can influence teens to change gender identity. If we're so different, why did God put us together? Perhaps that's precisely why. Genesis 2.18 Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. He had named the animals. None of the animals were just right for him. The word helper, Hebrew ezer, is one who supplies strength in an area that's lacking. It's a companion and a partner. It's not a servant and it's not a clone of man. Rather, it's a this person is a compliment to man. You think, well, why was it not good for man to be alone? Well, any of you ladies ever leave your husband at home with the kids for a week? All kinds of chaos. Perhaps God was not merely trying to solve a man's loneliness. That's what we tend to think, isn't it? Because understand this, Adam couldn't have articulated loneliness. There was only Adam and he was completely connected to God. He didn't, he hadn't experienced anybody else. So how could he articulate loneliness? You see, sort of the same principle as evolution. How does an amoeba know what it needs to be? How does an amoeba who can't see know it needs an eye? I'm telling you, it's not that good. You end up wearing contacts or glasses anyway, but. So he couldn't have articulated that. And remember, it is God's perspective that the man needed a companion. 
It doesn't say Adam said, I need a companion. It says God determined he needed a companion. Could it be that God gives us spouses? And for those who lack spouses, for people in a church, in an intimate church family, to help us grow and develop since marriage doesn't automatically cure loneliness. Since two two spouses share the image of God equally but differently, they are able to shape each other to reflect the character and the nature of God more fully. Our character doesn't improve in isolation, does it? How many of you get better by being all by yourself? Our faith isn't refined through seclusion. Alone, we can be completely and utterly self-centered, which prevents change. See, marriage is an illustration, isn't it? That what, Well, tell me this. You tell me, what is marriage an illustration of? Christ in the church or Christ and a believer, right? Is that true? Well, doesn't you becoming more like Christ and more in a relationship with him require difficulty and effort and time? Then why would we th- acknowledge it with Christ, which is the clearest analogy for marriage, and then think marriage should be easy and quick, immediate? It's not. God's pattern for marriage also includes departing parents. Verse 24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And it's interesting that this passage is quoted by Jesus in the Gospels at Matthew 19, 5. And it's cited by Paul in Ephesians 5. So so God, Jesus, and Paul clearly established that marriage is between a man and a woman. If it didn't matter which sex you married, it wouldn't have stated it so specifically or been repeated at least three times, two other times. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the Gospels, it's in the letters in the New Testament. Three sources at three different places, at three different times. Now, don't miss this point, though. I want to go back to this. The couple leaves home. Now, does that mean that a married couple must move out of town? That's not what it means. Because in ancient, in ancient Israel, sons typically inherited their father's land. And while they were still growing, and while their fathers still lived, they helped manage that land. So the sons would live near, if not with the parents. There might have been a compound. But what it means is that a man must put his wife's well-being ahead of his parents. See, every couple, every new couple particularly, faces the important task of separating from parents, collecting with a new spouse and God. Because this marriage is like a trinity. It's the man, the woman, and God in the center. 
then reconnecting with parents at a different emotional and spiritual level. Some wise parents graciously release and even aid their children to start a new life for themselves. And these wise parents accommodate themselves to more of a peer relationship. A married couple must set boundaries with parents. They should respectfully listen to the parents' advice and receive suggestions, but refuse control. You know, as I said, a marriage is, is, a, is two spouses, a man, a woman, and God. You don't need your mother or your father into that loop. Scripture is founded on trinities, not foursomes. It's okay to have some advice, receive some encouragement, of course, from parents, but they don't need to be controlling. And furthermore, it is never helpful to allow a parent to criticize or mistreat a spouse. Leaving home also means escaping painful experiences and serious wounds that were received during childhood from our parents. And this can happen intentionally or unintentionally. Parents, all of us wound our children. It doesn't mean we're deliberately abusive, but just unintentionally sometimes we can hurt our children, you know, hurt their feelings. You know what I'm saying? I come home from work. I'm worried about something. My child wants my attention. I don't give it because of what's in my mind. The child feels neglected, unimportant. But I'm, I'm not really thinking about my child. I'm thinking about this problem that's looming before me. So that's the way it often happens. It doesn't mean, you know, physical or intentional or verbal abuse necessarily. Sometimes we know that happens, unfortunately. But unhealthy homes are especially hard to leave. Because when parents are very insecure and fearful, it's interesting... Control always comes from fear. Whether that's me controlling or your parent controlling or you controlling, control always derives from fear. And a parent that wants to control a child, even in that child's marriage, is afraid of abandonment, is afraid of disrespect. And so that parent will hold on sometimes and unfortunately, often use manipulation and accusation to do so. The path of the pain of past experience etches itself into our minds, and it, it teaches us lies about ourselves and our identities, our value, our worth, our identity, our purpose. And those, those lies, those things we believe, form the framework for interpreting situations. So our responses are controlled by what we already believe. And that includes our responses in marriages. Remember, my responses are always and only reflective of me. Doesn't mean my spouse isn't doing something that's not right. But my response is about me. It sure does feel like it's about her, doesn't it? It feels like it's about him. But it's coming from within. The nature of the response. Now, how do we escape from this? Well, we forgive parents first, whether they ask or not. We forgive parents for causing us pain. 
Now here, in this entire series though, I'm never saying indulge abuse, okay? Everybody hearing me, aren't you? In a marital setting, in a parental child setting, I'm never saying indulge, indulge abuse. But we must forgive our parents when they cause us pain. But we must also erect some barriers that prevent further wounding. And then we seek the spirit to heal wounds and replace lies with truth. It's the only way to truly leave a dysfunctional home. You say, well, I need help. Well, call the care ministry. Call the Be Encouraged house in Simpsonville. They can help you. God's plan for marriage, thirdly, is that we develop oneness. Verse 24, again, the latter part. And the two are united into one. When two people marry, they become one. Unfortunately, then many scheme and struggle to discover which one they became. When marriage occurs, something new is created. As two people's identities and personalities merge. Not losing themselves, that's codependence. If you enter marriage and you completely lose who you are, that's not oneness, that's codependence. But accommodating another. I mean, I'll go ahead and say this as we begin. Two people are not compatible. Everybody already know that? We are inherently incompatible. And I think that's why God put us together. Because it requires growth and faith and patience to meld into one intimately connected life. God sees us as two persons sharing one intimately connected life. And that includes spiritually, emotionally, as well as physically in this relationship that's consummated through sexual union. Our culture thinks sex is the deepest expression of intimacy. But it's the most shallow if it's engaged in without emotional and spiritual intimacy and commitment. Don't you see the insufficiency of sex in the way our culture practices it? Because now this, you know, it, people are into this, what, bondage and tying people up and, and drugs and, I mean... It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's exploitive. It's it's purely flesh. It lacks a spiritual, even an emotional element. In our culture, people move from marriage to marriage often because the infatuation does decline. And familiarity causes passion to diminish. So the couple thinks that the love is gone when in reality they never began to love and they never experienced intimacy and it sounds like this it's no one's fault we still love each other we just grew apart that that's the Hollywood statement well I, you know and I'm always thinking I'd like I'm, I don't have y'all know this I don't have any Facebook or Instagram or any of those things but I would love to say, well, how many times are you going to do this, idiot? 
So your marriages are destined to last two or three years, maybe seven at most. They never understand that intimacy is an ever-increasing closeness from unending discovery. And important elements in developing intimacy is first a decision to love. Love is an action. It's a decision. A determination to stay interested. You know, if I say that, that my spouse is uninteresting, that says something about my shallowness, not about hers. You see my point? People are infinitely deep especially believers, but also a commitment to cherish. And cherish means honor, appreciate, hold dear, celebrate our spouses. And again, that's a decision. You see what I'm saying? If you focus on your spouse's weaknesses and mistakes, you'll be done with them in six months. But if you determine to cherish and discover this person that you believe God has given you, the opportunity for growth is infinite. Genesis 2.25 says, and now the man and woman were both naked and they felt no shame. It's interesting, in, isn't it, that they felt no shame. It doesn't say they felt no embarrassment. See, intimate oneness is enabled by a commitment to accept our spouses so they feel no need to hide their true selves or to pretend to be someone different than they are. This type of intimacy is, is obviously attractive and desirable, but it's very rare. One, one author estimated that no more than 25% of marriages experience intimacy. So if you're just kind of burnt out on your marriage and you're just so, it's stale, I'm here to encourage you. You have only begun and the possibility is endless, limited only by your imagination and motivation and creativity. I wonder why so, so few marriages experience intimacy. Well, I think, I think few marriages start with wisdom. You know, here at Brookwood, we don't marry anyone until they've gone through a wonderful course and met with mentors and, they, and they meet at least about eight weeks. And otherwise, where are our children and where are even some of us, where are we educated about marriage? Where? TV. Movies. Not God's word. Not spiritual wisdom. And so none of, us, none of us pastors perform marriages for anybody that won't go through this course and able to help the people to prepare them for marriage. And otherwise, they, they won't achieve intimacy because intimacy, it takes some time and some understanding and some effort and some selflessness and service. 
And above all, it takes understanding that this is what God has called me to and what God has designed marriage for. Intimacy requires vulnerability. As you expose parts of yourself where, where, where pain and regret and yes, shame, where the unattractive parts of yourself exist. And that's what being naked and not ashamed means. I'm secure to show you the worst of me. And marriage should provide a place where we can be who we are, vulnerable. But improve, yes. I'm not saying stubbornly say this is who I am, but say this is who I am or this is who I've been, but I want to grow through this relationship and in this relationship. Well, this sounds difficult. Anybody agree? Let me see. Let me see your hands if you agree. Thank you. Yes, and unimaginably satisfying. For two people committed to spend their lives helping each other become who God designed them to be. Are you up for that? Now, I'm going to tell you, I know a lot of backgrounds in this room. And some obviously come from dysfunction, even addiction. Does that mean it's impossible? Absolutely not. It means it must be more deliberate. And it must rely on God's spirit to help. You know, I can say this, and I don't say it in a cheesy way, but my marriage is better today than ever. I mean, and I'm married over 30 years. What happened? I got more healthy spiritually, emotionally. I grew spiritually more mature. My wife has done the same, and our marriage has improved at every step. Well, has it been easy? No. Did it just happen? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I'll tell you this, it's more than possible. And God will help. Are you ready? How many are ready to try courageously to step forward in their homes, in their marriages? I want y'all to hold this up because I'm going to pray for you. God, give us the ability to grow in these relationships that we believe you've given us. God, I pray right now that you cast out fear and doubt. I pray that you would replace them with courage and boldness and conviction and a deep, deep assurance that you will help us pursue your pattern for marriage. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Counselors, you come to the front. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. If you would like to know more about the many ways you can connect with other Christians here, or if you just have any questions about who we are, you can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org. 
or call us at 864-688-8326. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.